This is Mike Levitt. Our nation is faced with two very important, but sometimes competing priorities. We have a duty to provide the best possible healthcare for every patient, but we must also remain competitive in a global marketplace. That's what value-based care is all about. Our challenge is to create a uniquely American system of healthcare. Truly, we're in a race to make value work. Welcome to The Race to Value, a weekly podcast hosted by Dr. Eric Cleaver of the Institute for Advancing Health Value. The Institute is a nonprofit organization focused on accelerating the industry to succeed in health value. Join Eric as they engage the executives, clinicians, and entrepreneurs who are leading this race to value. Race to value listeners, do you want to know about how to fix American healthcare? Are you somehow discouraged about how difficult that may be? After listening to this week's episode, you may realize it's actually not as big of a, a deal as we might think. Healthcare, yes, it's an insurmountable challenge, but every monumental challenge begins with the belief that it's possible. It's not about the magnitude of the task. It's about the collective will to prioritize the well-being of every person that we serve in our population. Perhaps when approached with the audacity to imagine a healthier and more equitable future for all, we'll actually get there. And this week, I'm so excited to share with you Melanie Matthews. She's a dynamic and creative and innovative CEO. She's from Physicians of Southwest Washington, otherwise known as PSW. They're a population health company. They've been around for three decades. Melanie herself brings more than 20 years of operations, financial, human resources, product marketing experience. She's become known as the voice of physician health policies. She's out there not only in leading ACOs and taking delegated risk and, and capitated risk and Medicare Advantage and other plans, but she's speaking and engaging legislatures. She's has someone that you'll notice when you listen. She has a, a real personal capacity for energy and a clear focus on excellence. And she takes something like value-based care transformation, and she makes it seem like we could achieve it. And she's just so masterful and explaining all the different aspects of what goes into payment models and innovation. It's just, I'm just so excited to share this episode with you this week. If you want to hear from someone that's at the absolute forefront of risk-based contracting and innovation, who understands the issues at a very granular level, look no further than Melanie Matthews, CEO of PSW. So let's now hear from Melanie as she joins us this week in the Race to Value. Melanie, welcome to the Race to Value. I am so excited to have you on the show this week and learn more about physicians of Southwest Washington. So welcome to the show. Thank you, Eric. It's a pleasure to be here. Melanie, I'd really love to learn more about how PSW operates in this emerging value economy and how it's differentiated from some of the other innovative population health companies in the space. We've had so many 
leading innovators in the value sector on the show. I've, I've been able to engage leaders from companies like Lumeris and ChinMed and Oak Street, Village MD, Allidade, Agilon, Wolvana, Privia, Pearl, so many others. And yours is a company also that's one of the leading population health management companies in the country. And there's so many exemplars for us to look at in the industry and PSW is really one of them. I'm so excited to have the opportunity to engage you on the podcast and share PSW's approach to innovation with our sophisticated audience of change makers. Um, you guys are doing so much in value-based care and you've been doing it for a really long time. The company was founded in 1995 as an independent physician association and PSW has led healthcare innovation with the guiding principle of supporting the physician-patient relationship to improve quality of care. PSW has evolved over the last three decades, now has a diverse business that includes successful management of delegated risk contracts, launching a Medicare Advantage plan, standing up a national leading ACO, and building the infrastructure to manage population health across all payer models. And it's recognized for its collaborative approach and how you seek to meet partners where they are and a focus on engagement and data and analytics and, and ultimately creating value. And as this early adopter in value-based care, PSW has really established a great track record in delivering the right solutions, tools, and resources to ensure high quality of care uh, that's also cost-effective and drives successful patient outcomes. So Melanie, I wanted to see if you could share the PSW story with our listeners and how is the company achieving its mission to accelerate the transformation of healthcare from volume to value through innovation and collaboration? Thank you, Eric. I appreciate um, the introduction. At PSW, we have been really in value-based care for almost 30 years. And I think back to our roots of how we were organized and why we were organized. And it was really the story of independent physicians, both primary care and specialty, who in a time of market consolidation wanted to remain independent and focus on the, the relationship with their patient and really have a broader organization form to help them manage contract negotiations and how to interface with payers. And they were organized in the conference room at one of the multi-specialty clinics in our community and really paved the way for how independent providers could be more successful in achieving their goals by having a delegated risk and taking accountability for both the quality and total cost of care. What we found to be of interest over the course of the and maturation of the organization was around the time that I joined about nine years ago, where MACRA was coming out and the physician community was really trying to figure out how they were going to be able to be successful, both larger organizations and solo providers around addressing the complexity of the policy impacts of the new rules and regulations as the SGR was going away and MACRA was emerging as the new form of legislation that would you know, guide the way in which providers were paying and how in which they would be reporting their outcomes. And so we took a long and, and hard discussion around our boardroom table being a small IPA covering around 5,000 lives in two counties how could this organization not just survive, but thrive under new payment models? In that deliberation and discussion, 
we determined that we would become an early adopter in the new newly formed CMMI Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation Center, the new payment models. And so that began our foray and the next generation ACO for which we stayed in the model through the entire pilot period in which it evolved into the next contract, which you know became direct contracting and now is REACH. And as an organization, we said we can do this for our community. And we also have the infrastructure built and the capabilities and the interest at helping move the value-based agenda along for other providers and other communities and how we could take the infrastructure that we built and scale that to accommodate the new payment models. Subsequently, and through the process of the alternative payment models, we have convened and still continue to convene Medicare shared savings programs for other networks and really devise and develop a business model that allows us to be not just fluid and learn new rules, because we think that we're a kayak and a sea of cruise ships, but really how are we able to understand the business case and the nuances for independent physicians, as well as employed vertically integrated health system physicians and the critical access in rural community. Um, I think the value-based movement is important as the fee-for-service chassis is not realistic, has poor quality and poor outcomes, and the costs continue to go up, that we wanted to be a partner, not a vendor, but a partner for practices, regardless of how they are configured, with their ownership structure, et cetera. And so that's what got us here. And we determined we could also help organizations that wanted to really go at it themselves. And so we have a variety of contracts to where we take risk with partners, or we also provide management service organization type of services, leveraging our technical infrastructure and our population health platform, utilization management, care management, clinical connectivity, and so forth. So we do a combination of our legacy network and new providers in a myriad of different configurations. So that's been our story and we're very dedicated to the value-based movement and being part of that dialogue and discussion, Eric. Thank you for sharing that, Melanie. And I'd love to talk to you more about this value movement. You mentioned the fee-for-service chassis that the industry has been built on is unsustainable. And your company is front and center of what I think is a seismic shift underway in the American healthcare system. Over the last two decades, there's been much debate and experimentation around healthcare payment and delivery moving from fee-for-service to value-based care. But the pace of scaling payment model transformation has been glacial up until this point. CMS has reaffirmed its goal of speeding the uptake of accountable care, and they aim to give all Medicare beneficiaries and half of Medicaid beneficiaries access to coordinated longitudinal care through accountable care relationships by 2030. And this would represent a substantial acceleration and the pace of accountable care growth in the U.S. as accountable care contracts currently amount to around 40% of U.S. health insurance payments with most in shared savings arrangements that still largely involve fee-for-service. And although many may apply the retrospective look back on the inertia of value-based care as a trend to expect going forward, I really see it differently because the provider landscape has been disrupted in such a way that it never has been before. The healthcare industry is still reeling from the 
disruptive impact of the pandemic. We're seeing large-scale trends reshaping care delivery as we know it. You mentioned consolidation earlier. That's certainly one. We also see this increasing shift to home-based care delivery, the immediate impact of generative AI on how we conceptualize data and apply knowledge-based guidelines at the point of care. And provider organizations are also facing this combination of supply chain disruptions and labor shortages and high inflation and declining reimbursement in their fee-for-service book of business. And they're facing this daunting scenario of perpetual margin deterioration if they just maintain that status quo. So I wanted to see if you could also discuss the current healthcare economic landscape and the stress that the system is currently under. Why is increasing volume not the answer this time around when it comes to sustainability in the long term? I appreciate that many of the topics that you brought up are really the challenges, plural. There's so many factors going on. And one of the things I think about when I take a step back and I think about the movement to value, we have to think about the concept that we've been in a fee-for-service system of care. Everything is designed exactly to manage volume-based care. So all of the reimbursement, all of the workflows, all of the electronic health records being really designed to ensure the capture of charges and the appropriate coding for the bills is that this is not something that is an easy solve. And I think Glacier Speed is indeed exactly how it has felt, which I think has really opened the door for skepticism around the inability to make that transition quicker. I think when we think back on the COVID impact, I think that there are significant economic pressures across the healthcare system that you, many of which you just described, labor supply chain, exodus of the labor costs and exodus of um, healthcare staff. And all of these components have put additional financial pressure on the ecosystem of healthcare. And what do people do when they're in times of stress is they divert back to what they know. They double down on the, the, the tools and the, the tricks, if you will, to operational operationalize whatever business you're in. And so I think it puts an additional level of stress that the ecosystem is really struggling overall with healthcare and it's significantly impacting um, access. And I know in our state, we saw a lot of shifting and closing around types of clinics or specialties that were loss leaders for organizations because people had to contract the, the areas for which they were financially struggling in order to maintain the ecosystem of health, the enterprise level of health. And so I think that does add additional pressures and I think that makes the argument for value-based care continuing to be a challenge in, in the boardrooms for organizations across the healthcare system. Um, however, the fee-for-service model itself has not been really achieving what it expects to achieve, which is people get the services that they need and the time that they need it and the quality outcomes for that for the for the effort. And what we're really seeing is that healthcare has continued to go up. Consolidation has been a piece of that, but the unit costs have gone up, the technology and the expenses and investments that need to be made to keep up with the fact that medicine changes so quickly and so many investments are needed in that organization, in the all healthcare organizations. I would also state, Eric, that in my mind, we have to really think about 
the cost of healthcare of eventually is moved to the consumer. Because when employ employers have to think about employing their workforce and private insurers are really crop subsidizing government insurers, it's really trickling down to an unsustainable economic model, both from the fact that the trust fund um, is set to, to be depleted and the commercial consumer, the employer or the employee um, is therefore really forced to pay higher premiums than economically can work in the organization, both from an employment and an employer perspective. We've seen obviously an extraordinary increase in high deductible plans being moved into the employer space. And the, the rates just aren't sustainable to cross subsidize what has been tremendously underfunded government payers, both in the Medicare and Medicaid space. And when we saw the expansion economically in the states and in, in the uh, Medicare benefits, we are seeing higher rates of government payers. And so that's only exacerbating the economic challenge for now. And if we think about CMS and CMMI setting a broad goal of moving all beneficiaries into value, it's saying we need to ensure that we can have access and coordinated care to avoid duplication of services, high cost services and site of care, we don't need it. Ensure that we're being good stewards of our resources and that we're really able to show through care coordination that when done and done well and access is available, we can see that the cost goes down and the quality goes up for the populations that are managed in value-based care. And I think that's what we've been, we've been testing out in recent years. And I think that when we look at the research, we can certainly state that it is achieving that objective. It just is, there's a lot of additional factors that go into the economic space, including cultural factors, risk-taking at this point. When value-based care, it's, it's not as certain as fee-for-service. When you're running a fee-for-service model, you have these codes generating these revenues and you have this expense. But in value-based care, a lot of the services that you're doing to wrap around the patient, you're intending for those interventions to improve the total cost of care. And so it's a different model and it takes a long, it takes a long time and a lot of faith to, to pursue that endeavor and do it successfully. Melanie, what really resonates with me the more I learn about PSW is its allegiance to the independent physician practice model. And that goes back to the earliest days of the company. And PSW has extensive experience in supporting independent physician practices by offering insurance claims processing, contracting, and management services. PSW also supports independent practices by helping them understand and coordinate care for individual patients most in need, those interventions that you talked about to really be successful in value-based care. And, and in providing these wraparound services, PSW offers this path for regional provider groups to stay independent by getting that needed support from a larger organization that's required to really be successful in risk-based payment models. And as a population health company working with all these independent practices, I know you must be dealing with immense com competitive pressure. And there's just an absolute feeding frenzy right now in the marketplace for doctors. Str strategic transactions by physician groups are increasing on average about 20% a year over the last eight years. Private medical practice is facing tremendous competition from previously unknown rivals such as you know mega specialty and multi-specialty practices in mul multiple cities 
hospital systems that directly employ physicians and primary care and specialties. And there's a host of new and growing national players. Some of the new competitors are medical-based. We all know about Optum. There's Village MD, Summit Health, and others are coming out of the retail sector, such as Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, and Amazon. In the primary care environment, it especially seems that staying independent is almost next to impossible, where health systems, payers, and PE-backed physician aggregators are all looking to consolidate primary care providers. So I wanted to see if you could discuss the challenges that independent providers currently face in today's world and how PSW offers physicians a pathway to remain independent through value-based care. And with this mass consolidation that we're seeing in the broader primary care landscape, should we be concerned about the impact of, of corporatization and limiting our potential to lower total cost of care at a health system level? I think for one, Eric, there's a lot of questions baked in there and a lot of uncertainty around which way the wind will blow. But in our experience, our independent providers have, and of course they've been 28 years in value-based care, but that they've been providing highly high quality and highly managed patient care in this community by in part because they've been taking risk for so many years and they're really used to working under an incentive model that rewards good coordination and patient care outcomes. When you align the incentives, um, that's a very helpful uh, proposition for independent providers to have additional resources at their fingertips that they wouldn't normally have, a care coordinator to help address social determinants of health and provide the transportation and the meals on wheels delivery and access to behavioral health services and the things that are really great to do for total cost of care, but are noticeably absent under a fee-for-service model. So they've had some practice from that perspective since we have been in, in, in the communities that we serve as long as we have. However, what you say to be, I think it's true, which is the privatization and the, the entrance of private equity and venture capital into healthcare space um, has certainly escalated the number of competitive uh, options for providers to, to, to choose when they think about the daunting, I think, task, which is how do I remain independent when this healthcare activity is not just practicing medicine and billing my bills. I have to be adaptable to changes in the policy and payment landscape, and I need to have balance sheets big enough to recruit new providers into my community and my space. And what is this next generation of physician and providers? What do they want in their employment? And so there's a whole culture of older physicians that wanted to have the autonomy of owning their own business and being able to practice medicine the way that they felt was best. And now when we think about folks coming out of, of residency is, do they want to take on that sort of additional business case for medicine versus joining an organization that they can basically have a salary or a comp, a comp model that's more predictable than if they went at it alone? But when we look at the research, and certainly the ACO independent studies would show that the organizations that were convened with independent physicians were able to show better cost of care than when in other configurations, for example, 
employed model and vertically integrated systems. And I think part of it is because independents can adapt really more quickly because their organization is designed, it's a simpler design than moving, like I had that boat reference, than moving a cruise liner. And so they're able to adapt and they know their patients in a way that we see very much inside sort of the way that community medicine can feel in the independent space. And I'd go so far to say that we see and feel that in the rural communities that we serve as well, very connected to the community, very in line with the, their patients. And we see that play out in the way that the costs and quality are managed for those populations. I will say that healthcare does, did not disrupt itself in the payment model. So healthcare was going just fine down the uh, fee-for-service chassis for so many years. And so when these private equity and venture capital and other sort of market segmentation organizations entered the scene, it's a forcing function for not just independents to determine how they're going to, who they're going to team up with to do this complicated work, but also it's put a pressure on the vertically integrated employment model to really begin to embrace total cost of care because that's what purchasers, all purchasers are going to be looking for when they're selecting networks and contracts. I think one of the things we're going to see now is there are always going to be government payers and we see that there's been an increase in that government payer and in the independent physician space, if they don't, if they're not mindful of their, you know, payer mix, then it compromises their their financial health and integrity of their independent practice. So I think we're going to see an outcome um, of what's going on in the market really impact how we're going to have access to all of the patients that need to be seen in the communities we serve, because there's such a differentiation, even in value-based care or fee-for-service, in the way in which re care is reimbursed based on commercial or government payers. Well, Melanie, one of the key innovations that I've learned about with PSW is full risk Medicare Advantage delegation. I'd love to get your thoughts on delegated MA risk. Currently, we have over half of eligible Medicare beneficiaries enrolled in a private MA plan, and MA is on this explosive growth trajectory, which is seemingly moving in the direction of potentially 70 to 80 percent enrollment over the next decade. And that coupled with that silver tsunami of the aging baby boomer population and the consumer-centric innovation that MA plans have become known for makes it an attractive lever for value-based care transformation. And, you know, PSW has a, a pillar of innovation for which it's become known. And one of your leading innovations, as I mentioned, was that full-risk Medicare Advantage delegation. And your population health company has become a trusted partner with primary care physicians through its purpose-built platform that empowers providers to accelerate their transition to value-based total cost of care models for senior patients in these fully delegated capitated MA plans. And by leveraging PSW's innovative infrastructure, that allows for effective risk sharing with MA plans. Your provider networks also have this remarkable opportunity to have an impact in population health with rewarding economics. And your suite of capabilities for delegated services include claims management and UN, along with other traditional population health MSO services that support provider and patient engagement and data and analytics and compliance and quality reporting and medical economics and executing on that innovation 
can support your providers in decreasing PMPM spend and lowering MLR by in addressing that impactable utilization of medical services while also improving clinical outcomes. It's a great model, and I wanted to see if you could discuss what all goes into making your full-risk Medicare Advantage delegation platform successful in improving outcomes for senior populations, and how does the cultural ethos of PSW work in conjunction with that platform to fully align economics with outcomes in support of broad-based value transformation? Great. Thanks for the question, Eric. For one, I think it all starts with um, both incentive alignment and the necessary data that we need to have. And then I guess I would add the third, which is we need to have a, a common set of workflow that's applicable ac across pay payer segmentation and health plans. So if I'm, if I'm an independent practice and I don't have a PSW and I'm in value-based arrangements with call it seven, 10 payers. I'm doing things seven to 10 different ways according to the way that the payer or the government wants things reported, wants the workflow, how data is extracted, what's the value-based quality measures selected, et cetera. So I would start with the fact that we, it's our, our goal and objective is to align all the different payer contracts that we manage under one sort of common set of quality and utilization goals. And including with Medicare Advantage, having a common set of what's auto-authed and what requires the authorization process so that the provider is managing the care similarly for the contracts that we manage, regardless of what the payer, the plan is. So that there's a muscle memory that goes into place for the practice rather than having to do things seven to 10 different ways. So we think that there's a, a value at creating the muscle activity, the clinical connectivity, the, the data and infrastructure that allows us to use both claims and clinical data to identify the high and rising risk patients. So th that would be, I think, uh, an important, if asking my physicians on right now, instead of me, I think they would say, I like that I have one way that I do it with PSW versus the so many different ways depending on the contract. So that's one. Two, I would say is the incentive alignment. So we've done full capitation. We've done fee-for-service plus value-based scorecards that are a balanced scorecard that recognize the patient management, the medical loss ratio, quality and utilization outcomes with a risk adjusted approach for the complexity of the patients to a hybrid capitation with intention to moving back to, to full cap. And what that has allowed us to do is really not just have the multi-payer approach, but it allows us to, to coordinate and consolidate the actionable data so that we know who's that patient that's we know immediately the high utilizers and how do we intervene physician to physician, care management to practice to help support that patient in a plan of care developed um, to improve their outcomes and also overcome roadblocks because we serve as the shepherds in the healthcare system where we're making sure the things that are supposed to happen where in fee-for-service, that coordination is a missing piece. So we're very committed to that. And then we can also because we have prospective panel size, we know who those patients are. So paying that money up front is very helpful in stabilizing the practices and having 
stable revenue. In fact, because we were in delegated risk arrangements during COVID, we were able to prepay what would have been billable charges to the network to help them in the time when the fee-for-service spigot essentially turned off as COVID was impacting every aspect of our healthcare system. So we really look at capitation is going to stabilize our revenue. We look at the ability to pay the providers something greater than the government rates, which is necessary for the economics to work inside the healthcare system, particularly for primary care, which is frankly underfunded. It allows us to be payer partner agnostic, and it allows us to really focus on how do we grow our members because our providers like having a predictable and stable capitation model in their incentive payment. And then depending on how the contract performs, then there's additional shared savings opportunity because we want to continue to have our practices be able to not just be financially sustainable, but make investments into more value-based activities as we move through the, I call it the maturity index of the capabilities that we have. And then how do we continue to make investments in the practice for them in those capability indexes? So we look at outcome data, quality data, clinical coordination data, and then we align incentives around clinical connectivity and supplemental data. Um, because we need to have access to the information that's necessary to best coordinate the patient and also to make sure that we're um, reporting out the good work that's being done at the closer to the bedside. Well, Melanie, as a population health company, PSW has such a massive network that's taking risk with both government and commercial payers. And you have a risk contract portfolio that covers over 350,000 lives, of which 80,000 are with CMS with both the ACO REACH program and the Medicare Shared Savings program. And earlier this year, ACO REACH replaced the direct contracting model as the latest iteration of CMMI's advanced ACO models. And PSW just completed its first performance year as a participant in the REACH program. And historically, PSW has participated in CMS. You were a part of the direct contracting model and previously served five years as a next generation ACO. And your prior experience in the next-gen ACO and direct contracting models are of interest to me as I really want to understand the sophistication of the PSW model and taking on additional risk in the traditional Medicare program. While we've seen MSSP as the cornerstone ACO program over the years, and in most of our audience is native to that program, I mean, PSW really has this broad-based experience with advanced APMs, which now, of course, includes REACH. And so as a former direct contracting entity that's now since moved into the ACO REACH program, can you share your your overall perspective and experience from participating in these programs? And also, as we see CMMI continue to iterate on their APM portfolio by applying lessons from predecessor models, what do you see as the relative strengths in the ACO REACH program currently and what can be improved upon in the future? Great. So for one, Eric, I think there is a maturity model around risk where MSSP is a great entry into the ACO model. It's got a very predictable financial benchmark. Um, but what I've appreciated and having been a part of CMMI since the inception of the next generation ACO model is that's where the models are iterating change and new model features. 
And it's by design, right? That's a testing center. It's meant to try on those new things and see what works. Does care coordination benefit work in the home when you don't have to meet the home health requirement? Does eliminating the ability to charge co-pays for certain transitional and care coordination or home visits, if we don't charge a copay, are patients more willing to participate in these activities that would help? The waivers associated, the beneficiary engagement, ways that we can um, align incentives to beneficiaries. These are all great sort of testing and design that's occurring in the CMI program that we really appreciate, as well as the sort of culture and partnership between the CMMI Center and those that are innovating in the new payment models, which is we can have a lot of discussion around the features that are hard to implement, easy to implement, big lift, little lift, big value, little value. It gives us an opportunity to really study the value of the waivers and the opportunities. Something that you mentioned earlier, Eric, was that more than 50% of Medicare eligibles are in Medicare Advantage programs. This is the first year that it tipped the scale, right, at 52%. And as you predicted, consumers, beneficiaries, are really desiring to have and, and will trade a, a, a more narrow network for a more different kinds of benefits. And along with those benefit designs comes care coordination and monitoring if you will, to get the patients the services that they need. And Medicare has, over the course, had very relatively little changes to the Medicare benefit benefits themselves. So Medicare Advantage has really paved the way for the consideration of what consumers are looking for. I see the CMMI payment models as a way to begin to think about the waivers and different opportunities to improve the experience for the Medicare beneficiary. Um, an example, when we looked at the data in the state of Washington over COVID, the ACO patients had significantly higher um, vaccination rates and COVID uh, vaccinations as well as flu and pneumonia because we have campaigns that are distinctly working on ACO patients and we have relationships with our ACO patients that is not as common in a fee-for-service without an ACO. So we, we've seen that the outcomes um, have been, we've been able to share and demonstrate that having an aligned population and having people that are dedicated to coordinating the care is, is getting us better health outcomes really for, for public health, which checks the box there, which is all of which are the things we wanna do in our community. In terms of reach, I've also really appreciate that this is the first model that really contemplates the economic considerations of managing populations in underserved areas by having an area deprivation index applied to the model to begin the conversation that we need to have, that the health equity outcomes are real. There's disparity significantly. Um, it can be double the cost a mile away. And how we think about if we're, you know, back to the fragmentation of populations, I worry that the government payers will be left behind in terms of patients for access. And I really appreciate that the REACH model attempts to get in there and really start the financial alignment of, of sort of rebalancing the economic needs that are needed in underserved communities. I don't think it's necessarily the end-all be-all for the measurement instrument that was chosen, 
I feel like it needs to be net new money and not the a balanced budget perspective. Um, but I think it's a great start to the REACH model that gives us an opportunity to look at that um, by zip code and, and really can understand how to make investments into certain particular communities. And it's really shined a spotlight on that activity. So I really appreciated that about the REACH model. So I'd say the flexibilities to be able to test new things, the um, ability to address social determinants of health and the way that the benchmarks are configured, and the ability to design and iterate and learn along with CMMI are the key uh, cornerstones, if you will, for me around the ACO REACH model that I've appreciated. On what can be done better, I think that we have a policy a, objectives we all want to man solve for. And we want to solve for access and health equity, and we want to solve for the increase in, of costs and spend by doing a better job coordinating. And I think that they're, the, the benchmarks are not as predictable as they need to be. And they're complex and I'm not sure, you know, how much you want to get into the, the detail of benchmarking, but there are so many considerations that go into the benchmarking. For example, there's the historical expenditures. There's the, not just for your ACO, but whether it's a, a regional or a national sort of adjustment that's done related to the, the expenses for that region or the country. There is also the SIF adjustment and the retrospective trend adjustment and other components that build how the benchmark works. And so one of the skepticisms naturally of many in value-based care that have either had concerns and this has kept them from joining or continue to iterate with the government on ways in which we can stabilize and, and project that is that you can have your, your beneficiaries aligned and to you and then your benchmark and then based on factors, your benchmark changes and it can change significantly, which is the lack of predictability, I think, causes some of the cultural hesitancy of participating in the ACOs because it's not as predictable as when you're your DRG rate. So I think we need to look and figure out and find a way to have corridors and some stabilization to the way that we get the benchmarks so that it's more predictable. Um, and that'll, I think that would be very helpful as we move forward in the value-based movement. I would also say that I appreciate about the REACH model, that there's an opportunity to test a capitation model within the ACO. And another feature that I really like is the health equity plan where the ACOs can really look at their data and determine particular markets and have initiatives and campaigns around addressing social determinants of health. Well, Melanie, it's a great perspective on ACO reach and the value-based care movement in regard to the iteration and innovation of these payment models. I now wanted to get more into the operational aspects of executing on a value-based care agenda. If we're going to succeed in transformation, these ACOs have to have a playbook for population health that provides an operational approach to achieving proactive wellness, disease management, improved health outcomes. You talked a little bit about that earlier, but I wanted to, just in terms of talking about a playbook, I wanted to stay on this football analogy, if you will. We are in the, in, it's that time of year, but the ACOs execute on a game plan where the, the chapters really unfold with tactical play-by-play -play of preventative strategies, community community engagement, data-driven insights. And I know the PSW playbook invariably has 
the, the same types of programs as all the other ACOs out there, of course, everything from care management, population health management, beneficiary outreach, engagement, network communication, compliance, aligning the networks. It's the execution capability and the company culture that really catalyzes transformation. I think about that Peter Drucker uh, quote. He said that goals can only be accomplished through the vehicle of a plan, but plans are only good intentions unless they immediately degenerate into hard work. While that's true, we see that the top performers in value-based care don't just stay busy. They're doing the right things when they're, in terms of what they're accomplishing. They're laser-focused. They're, they're not trying to boil the ocean. And so I wanted to see if you could share specific strategies or approaches with our listeners that your ACOs have employed to maintain focus and achieve meaningful outcomes. Considering this evolving landscape of healthcare, how can ACOs remain adaptable with their execution capability and company culture to address emerging challenges and opportunities in their population without getting burned out in the process? Sure. It's tricky. I'll start with that. I would say that from a cultural perspective, is coming as a partner approach. We like to really utilize the staff and the resources as close to the bedside as possible. And every organization is different that we do business with. And in organizations where they have formed care management, we work very differently than those that say, I'd like you to manage the population and work. We would like you to do that work. So we do a little bit of what I would call a needs assessment and a capabilities assessment around what capabilities are inside the networks that we use and then where is the best way for us to engage. We have a hospital and employed health system partner in our community. And every week, our care management and medical management teams are discussing on the phone the difficult to discharge patients or the patients that we need to have a more comprehensive plan of care around. So it's very high touch individual to individual, working together, developing trust between our organization and theirs. And then when you have trust and partnership, then you form a team. And I think population-based care, if we're talking about football analogy or any sports analogy, is that it's a team-based care approach. And I think when we have so many different healthcare entities segmenting the population for certain business models, we see it that's not necessarily the approach of team-based care. It's doing a really good job in a really targeted area. And what we aim to do is look at the total cost of care and management of patient, you know, 365 days a year, regardless of the, their, the clinical condition, so that we can support and be a team player with the communities that we serve in the medical community. And I think it's really important that we always stop and think about bringing it back to the patient and the family. And how do we really resonate and engage and activate our patients as part of that part of the health instead of we're all doing these things for them. And so I've always felt it's the old um, medically related social service worker in me, but we also have to make sure that we're extremely engaged with what the patient wants. For our staff as part of the playbook is that we do motivational interviewing and we work at how to best engage the patient and really put the patient first in the center. And then it allows us to coordinate around with the medical community, but it's really uh, an ethos, if you will, for us to think about 
what the patient's goals are, maybe not what our goals are for the patient, but what are the patient goals? Because people are always more successful in their plan of care if they are a part of the plan of care. So that's part of our playbook is to ensure that we have the patient engagement. There is, I think, total cost of care rooted in primary care work that's been around as, as long as ACOs are, which is ensuring that we have access, that we're doing the quality and preventative screening, that we're understanding if they're, are they getting their medications? Are they taking them? Are they doing the post follow-up? All the things that like, have to be the ABCs of comprehensive primary care and coordinated primary care. What I think in our playbook in the next iteration is that what we've done so far hasn't necessarily been hitting the mark with specialists and complex patients. So we look forward to the coming years where we develop shadow bundles within our total cost of care so that we can really be a player with the or connect rather with the specialists and how they're their part at managing patients. And I think that's going to be where our organization is going to be focused on in the next um, coming years. That's exciting, Melanie. And I'm really encouraged to hear about the specialist integration. It's seemingly something that's been missing, I think, from the broader value-based care movement is how to go about creating the right alignment and economics to include specialists as well, since they're such an important part of care delivery. As I'm thinking about all the work that, that you do at PSW, one thing that's really enamored me is that your work isn't confined just to the organization itself. You have such involvement in uh, legislative advocacy and the broader industry as a whole. It reminds me of something one of my mentors told me early on in my career about the importance of really being involved in the communities that, that you serve. But you've taken that to a whole new level just in being able to tap into your passion for public policy. You've become a, a trusted voice for health policy recommendations that improve the professional standing of physicians as leaders in value-based care transformation. You're on the board of directors for the Healthcare Transformation Task Force, the board of directors for NACOS, the, also the board for APG. You're a member of the APG REACH Coalition. You're on the board and executive council for uh, Accountable for Health. And you're very so I wanted to ask you just in your various industry leadership roles and advocacy efforts, what are some of the more important legislative priorities that you're focused on in service to advancing the aims of uh, value transformation? And also, could you provide our listeners with some personal insights from your boundary spanning work as a national healthcare leader and change agent that helps sustain you as a dynamic, creative, and innovative CEO? Well, thank you for the kind words. I'm involved in uh, multiple organizations for a few reasons. One is I think that our networks that we support come from different perspectives, whether you're an independent sole physician provider, whether you're in a larger multi-specialty group, whether you're a hospital-based employed model, whether you're in a critical access hospital or an FQHC, that there's um, various organizations come from that space in a different way. And I always feel that it's important to not get all of your news from one channel. The other component is that I think that there are threads of common policy activities between all the organizations that are committed to advancing value-based care. And it's important that regardless of what position you're standing in, there needs to be a united voice among 
many of the advocacy associations around first of all, defining what value-based care is. And many of the creators, creators of the Affordable Care Act are no longer in administration as we're, what, 11, 12 years from the ACA. And the architects and authors of the intent behind the work to move to value, when new staff come in, whether it's congressional or Senate or the staffers, the health policy staff, um, there's a huge learning curve for what are we trying to do and I feel really compelled and committed uh, to the mission of sharing a story of when and how value-based care works. Um, frequently, I tell the story of the patient that had gone to the ER 58 times in six months, and we got them attributed to us in our ACO model. And one of the first things we did was call the patient, call the primary, their primary care physician, call their family. And it was determined that this individual, she would get really anxious at, at about 4.30 in the afternoon because she had some dementia and she would be getting anxious right around sundown. And so she would go, she would call 911 and go to the ED and they'd check her out and they'd send her home. And it was just a rinse and repeat. And what really was happening is that she was socially isolated and she was scared. And so we were able to develop a plan of care around reaching out to her every day at four o'clock. And it was just a care navigator who built a relationship with her. And she would get through that. And essentially, the emergency visits just stopped altogether. And that did not take a physician. and did not take taxing of the medical system. And it wasn't basically filling the emergency department with patients that don't, be, that don't need to be seen in that high clinical complexity um, site of service. And so those kinds of activities are what we're aiming to do in value-based care which is to take the burden off of the higher you know, uh, physician and tax taxing system of hospital care and emergency department and so forth, and ensure that patients are receiving the care in the, in the setting that they need. And sometimes that is social care or companion care or social isolation. And those are things that are not embedded in the fee-for-service model. By being involved in the policy, I feel like it's important to shout from the rooftops the importance of value-based care, what it is, because it's super hard to explain. And when you have turnover, as expected in the administration, ensuring that we have some continuity around the voice of the work, the being champions for the work and advocating and helping for it to be understood. Um, so that's how we've gotten involved. And it's just one of those things where if you have a passion for something and we're highly passionate about value-based care, we want to ensure that we have we're reaching audiences that we feel should be hearing about that value-based care and how they can help support it in the in the policy. And it's complicated and confusing, and there's a lot of nuances to the policy rules. And so we feel very uh, committed to engaging with our delegation and other national delegation at telling that story and the impact of this work at a patient level. So there's the outcomes at a aggregate level for the country, but there's also the patient voice that's really important that we make sure that voice gets resonated. And so that's part of the, the, the sort of commitment to the advocacy piece. Also, I'd say from a what policy we're, we're really invested in is the Value in Healthcare Act and ensuring that there's a preservation of the advanced alternative payment model program. When I was talking about the sort of cultural components of moving forward with value, there needs to be incentives that continue to be in place to encourage 
jumping on board with value-based care and seeking to understand and learn more about it. Because if the more lives that we have in value-based care, the more the flywheel continues to move where patients are identified and helped and coordinated earlier in the process. And when providers and physicians have more patients in value-based care, then it becomes more part of the stabilized workflow and, and muscle memory for how we manage and coordinate uh, care. So I feel very strongly that, we, that the Value in Healthcare Act is extraordinarily important for addressing the nuances inside the payment models and how we need to address those. And I feel very strongly that the advanced alternative payment model and fee schedule increases and so forth that are in the AAPM need to be differential for AAPMs versus um, the MIPS and fee-for-service path. If you had a fork in a road and you had to choose one, we need to ensure that we're aligning the AAPM movement to get to the policy objective, which is moving more lives into value-based care by 2030. Wow, Melanie, that's just so profound. You you said you mentioned so many important things and this work is really complicated and confusing to your point, but with your passion, it, it almost gives me a fire and I'm sure our listeners feel the same way that they can move the mountain. And we, but we have to continue to shout from the rooftops. And you're certainly doing the the work not only in uh, leading PSW as someone who knows the way and is showing the way in, in terms of impacting patient outcomes, but telling that story and advocating uh, for the broader value-based care movement. We talk about on this show all the time, the economic and the moral imperatives to uh, transform our healthcare delivery system. And it's important to really stay centered on that, that passion play, why it's important. And I think ultimately we have a a reason to be optimistic. And as we're talking right now, we're in a new year. I, I thought as we wrap up our conversation today, as we're thinking about the the future, I'd love to get your long view on population health. Are you confident that we will eventually reach that goal of having every Medicare beneficiary in an accountable care relationship by 2030? And also, how should uh, industry leaders, our listeners on the show, be you know in their organizations for the road ahead in this race to value? So I am confident that the fee-for-service system is not going to be a sustainable one for the United States healthcare system. And I believe that the efforts of accountable care deliver the results we're looking for. I feel that it is extremely hard work and it is going to take time. I think about salmon swimming upstream. That's what it has felt like in the value-based movement. But I think around educating and aligning the way that we even train physicians and nurses and social workers around value-based care is different than the fee-for-service medical model. So this needs to be tackled from a lot of different directions and it will take time and change is hard. And that is just part of the sort of culture of change management that I think. I also believe that we need to ensure that we have stability around the financial projections to ensure that the broader community has confidence and the ability to be successful in the models because people want to deliver healthcare in the communities they serve and they got into healthcare because they want to make a difference and they want to impact patients positively. And the lack of sort of confidence, I think, has set back some of the value-based movement. From a policy perspective, I think we need it to really continue to work with policymakers and CMMI as we share an agenda and objective of improving 
care and outcomes. We we say all the time at PSW, our job is trying to fix American healthcare, no big deal, but it is hard work. And we have to recognize when we see huge improvements in vaccination records in our population versus V for service, it's taking time to recognize that is a huge win. And we need to take time to recognize on the huge wins that we do have. We need to focus on not everything at once. So I always say you focus on a few things, not a lot. So I we have everything grounded under population health on a page so that we have a one page. These are the key drivers for today. And then every year, the drivers can change a little bit as you become more evolved and have workflows that are established and strong and proven outcomes. So I feel strongly that we need to work on the outcomes that generate the best improvement in quality and cost. Just because we like that intervention doesn't mean that's the best outcome intervention. So using data to, to drive what we're going to do from policy perspective nation, nationwide. I also think that there's bipartisan support for the movement into value. And so as I think about something we can all agree on, no matter what side of the aisle you sit on, is that we, healthcare is here. Healthcare is not going to go away. We need healthcare. We need great healthcare. I think we should be and are embarrassed as a nation for our outcomes. And we need to come up with different ways for which we integrate the social and medical model to get better outcomes at the right price, better price and quality than we deserve. And we deserve that for ourselves, our parents, our children, our grandparents. We deserve that in the communities altogether. I think that this is the right direction. I just think it's not without a lot of bumps and twists and turns along the way. Well said, Melanie, and it's been a pleasure to spend the last hour with you discussing all the great work that you're doing there at PSW and the value-based care movement as a whole. Again, I'm very optimistic for our future. If anything, just the recognition that fee-for-service is not sustainable and we have to find a solution and you're out there blazing the way. And it's just such a great pleasure to, again, to be with you and to have you share that story and allowing us to showcase your insights and all all the best practices that, that you're doing and getting the outcomes that you're seeking in the populations that you serve. So again, it's a, pl a pleasure to be with you and I appreciate you uh, joining us this week on the Race to Value. Thank you so much, Eric. It was a real pleasure.